Here the Voice in Prayer explores Christianity and belief in early modern Europe. This podcast seeks to understand the cascading changes and transformations to Christian belief in the years between Luther and Wesley, the age of early modern Europe. To know the world of Christian belief in the early modern age is to know our own modern society, its roots, hang-ups, and preoccupations. We will explore the contours, practices, and flashpoints in the story of European belief in the crucial time of modernity's beginnings. The Christian transformations of the early modern age are the origin of our own age. My name is Kyle Robinson, and I am professor of European history at Olivet Nazarene University. Join me as each episode, I sit down with a guest to discuss the beliefs, practices, and hang-ups of the early modern age. Welcome to Hear the Voice in Prayer, a podcast on religion and belief in early modern Europe. Today we're going to explore some of the cultural productions of the Long Reformation, of this period between Luther and Wesley. Specifically, we're going to examine music, Christian music, hymns, right? Hymns form a core feature of Christian worship. They always have. Some of the key passages of scripture are the Psalms, forms of Christian worship. And this was true too of the Reformation. Martin Luther, the man who inaugurates Protestantism in many ways, was also a hymn writer. Perhaps one of his most famous hymns is A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Ein fester Burger ist unser Gott in his original German, right? This sure foundation of faith that Luther articulated through music. At the other end of our period, the Wesley brothers, John and Charles Wesley, were also consummate hymn writers. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, our great Redeemer's praise, this classic Wesleyan hymn about expressing Christian faith, about evangelizing their foundation in the gospel. So hymns are crucial. Hymns are key to our understanding of Christian life, particularly in the Long Reformation, when there is so much debate about what it means to be a Christian, about what it means to have Christian worship. So today, in order to explore this issue of hymns, to explore some philosophy around hymn making, I'm joined by Jacob Fryer, one of our students here at Olivet. Hello, Jacob. Hello, thanks for having me. No problem. So first, before we jump into hymns and, in your case, their context within the English Reformation, mm -hmm. tell me a little bit more about yourself. Who are you? Where are you from? What are you studying here at Olivet? Yeah, so hello, guys. My name is Jacob Fryer. I am from Georgetown, Kentucky. I'm a junior here at Olivet, and my major is social science education, and I'm looking forward to talking with you today about, well, just analyzing this hymn and connecting it with the English Reformation. Awesome. Uh, thanks, Jacob. Right. So social studies ed major. So schools out there listening to this podcast, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, Here's an awesome teacher for you yeah. in a couple years or so, right? A year, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there and you go. It's getting about to be that time. Nice. Yeah. So, um, so we're talking about music today and hymns and you've have this awesome primary source from early in the 18th century from England of a Church of England cleric justifying hymn singing. But before we get into that, um, I thought I would just ask you sort of what was your interest in music to begin with? What attracted you mm -hmm. to the subject? What makes it cool? Yeah, so personally, I'm a huge fan of music. I'm that kid who always walks around campus between classes with his earbuds in. Nice. <laughs> kind of zoned out. And... 
not only do I like, like secular music, one of my favorite aspects of church is worshiping God and service. And I really enjoy that. But yeah, like... Yeah, so that vocal expression yeah, of for Christian sure. worship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really key too. And it's really yeah. cool to like participate in that and that sort of community aspect mm-hmm. of worship itself. And I think that's why this is such a big uh, debate in many ways over the course of the Reformation, a debate that's connected to larger issues in the church, right? How do we have that corporate form of worship? What makes Protestant worship distinct from Mm -hmm. Catholic worship? Do we sing hymns in English? Do we sing them in Latin? Are hymns only singing Mm -hmm. the Psalms, right? Or do we sing hymns that we also have written ourselves in addition to scripture in Christian worship? All these issues present themselves. Kind of of compared to today where you go to like college church, it's a mixture right, a, of... A church here on all of yeah, its campus. Sorry, yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's a mixture of hymns and um, like a band. And so right. like you're kind of, you kind of see that like back and forth. Like, do we sing hymns today right. or do we use a band for worship? Right, this whole sort of worship wars. I remember yeah. that from when I was like in elementary school. Yeah. <laughs> in like the early or late 90s and like early 2000s, like the, mm-hmm. all that stuff. Um, yeah, are drums appropriate? Are all of those things appropriate should we only have organs and I think what's sort of cool about that is when you realize that this isn't a new idea right that like actually Christians thinking purposefully about how we should worship and what worship mm-hmm. does for us is not sort of something that we just invented like in 1998 right yeah. <laughs> it's, it's this is a, a long born out process a process with a history mm-hmm. I mean yeah it. and also like later on we're going to talk about how our friend here uses yeah or he connects worship back to the text, back to the scripture. Right, scripture itself, yeah. like the use of the Bible. Again, a mm-hmm. key Reformation theme, right? Sola Scriptura, one of yeah. Luther's key principles of, of Protestantism, of the Protestant Reformation in general. So um, you've already hinted at him, Henry Abbott. We'll come back to him a little later. That's our yeah. Church of England vicar, right? Our Church of England priest who will write this treatise we're going to explore. But Abbott has a context. Everyone has a context. And Abbott's context is within this longer narrative of the English Reformation, of these transformations that happened to the expression of Christianity, uh, beginning with Henry VIII and that are ongoing across the 17th century and into Abbott's context in the early 18th century. So I was wondering if maybe you could sort of highlight a few things for our listeners Um, about what's going on with the English Reformation. Yeah, so kind of not necessarily kicked off, but it becomes very noticeable around um, March in 1627 when Charles I was crowned and he married a Catholic. Right. Oh, okay. So this is yeah. our 17th century yeah. controversy over religion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and then, I mean, Parliament and the people didn't right. really like that a whole lot. In 1642, the English Civil War broke out between... Right. The I don't want to say loyalists and Royalist, the parliament, right, royalists and the parliament. parliament, people loyal yeah. to the crown. I guess yeah. we could say, and then Oliver Cromwell, right, his Republican yeah. Puritans, mm-hmm. right, and they're kind of hostile in many ways. To, oh yeah, to Christian worship. I think during the Civil Wars, a lot of English cathedrals that have them mm-hmm. uh, lose their organs. Right, they lose. Um, some of these expressions of sort of Christian music making, and that's because the Puritans have this well pure. As they, as they were, <laughs> yeah. right? This purifying <laughs> impulse, right? Stripping away any type of outside vestige in this. Of course, right? That's a process that begins earlier um, in the 16th century with Henry VIII and his sort of leaving Rome, um, the Act of Supremacy of 1534. 
And then as you say, this sort of process that Abbott's context is in is more these 17th century transformations, right? These transformations around the Civil War, the really height of Puritan power. But then what happens after Cromwell, right? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. or I believe it was, it's either June or January 30th. Charles I is executed. January, yeah. January. Yeah, and the uh, then Oliver Cromwell comes to power. But however, the crown is restored in 1660 right. when Charles II comes from, I believe, the Netherlands. Is that right, correct? yeah. And he yeah. sails across. He's been hiding out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. He was in exile <laughs> across for a the channel. While. Yeah. And, um, and then eventually in 1688, I think this is where the biggest like key um, point that kind of affected Abbott in this sermon in 1724 was in 1688 when Charles II died and his brother James II took over. And right. um, his he, brother is a Catholic. Yeah, right? yeah. that's why. And then people wanted to overthrow James and right. put it put his daughter, I believe her name was Mary. Right. Yeah. Into and her, power because yeah. she was a Protestant. Right. With her husband. Yeah. William. Right. Who's Dutch. And then too. Yeah. so they had. Um, William of Orange right. come over. A lot of people from Parliament like, wrote right. him letters and like yeah, complained exactly. about like, it. Yeah, exactly. Like secret pleas, yeah. right? Come save us from this horrible Catholic king, yeah. right? That's Who so now has an heir to the throne, right? That's yeah. part of the 1688 problem, mm -hmm. right? And then, that he gives so, birth to a son. Yeah, so then he comes over. Or his wife does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's also known as, well, it's known as the Glorious Revolution, but it's also known as the like, Bloodless Revolution. Yeah, exactly, right? So yeah. There's no fighting. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, James II freaks out and <laughs> yeah, runs away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah runs he, tried, he tried to flee once, and then yeah. he got capped, but then he successfully... Right. right. And then hung out with uh, King Louis. And, yeah, exactly. Gets yeah. a nice big sort of palace to live in yeah. for the rest of his life. Yeah, outside of Paris. So, yeah, I think for me, right, 1688 is, is significant because, right, the classic things about it that historians say is, is it's... On the one hand, the triumph of Parliament, but also really the triumph of assertive Protestantism, yeah. right? Assertive Protestantism, and it's sort of in that context that Abbott's text is is produced, right? Assertive Protestantism, um, a real reflection upon what does it mean then to be in this kingdom that is now fundamentally structured from the highest level of its government in a commitment to Protestant belief, Protestant worship. So it begins to make sense then why someone would publish a, a sermon, maybe defending hymns, defending their yeah. practice in this context a little bit. I also think, again, significant too is that earlier background that you mentioned of the Puritans, mm -hmm. right? So again, thinking about, well, now that the church has been restored with 1660, that the monarchy has been restored and then transformed by 1688, it's important to make sure we don't go back to the Puritans, right? It's important to make <laughs> yeah. sure that we don't have another group of sort of hotheads going through churches, tearing out all of the organs and the musical instruments and well, yeah, and I mean, the Reformation itself had a huge effect on right. like Christian art and the idea of artistic yeah, exactly. worship. I mean, you know, song schools on abbeys right. and uh, cathedrals and collegiate like churches were shut down, choirs disbanded, music books were destroyed, and organs were removed right. from places of worship, which right. is kind of interesting. Yeah, it's, that's always struck me, like why the argument against music, but I think it's connected to some of these other similar arguments against uh, images for iconoclasm. And I don't yeah. know what the technical word for yeah. being anti-music is. Mm -hmm. Musical clasm, maybe. Yeah. I don't think so. And even um, <laughs> Well, maybe musical clasm isn't actually a real word, but I think it is connected to, again, some of these arguments about iconoclasm. Early in the Reformation, there's a lot of debate about the use of images and I think it's some similar 
rhetoric going on. How do we capture our worship for God? Is it in fact some type of idolatry, right? To sort of think about mm-hmm. God and different forms of human-based expression. And a lot of it's also connected to this argument over how we should worship. Should we worship in Latin? Should we worship in German in Luther's case or in yeah. English in the case of the Church of England? So all these things are are caught up within that. I know sort of Luther, some of Luther's early disagreements with the radical reformer um, Karlstadt uh, connect to this idea of yeah. iconoclasm and the use of music and the vernacular in churches. But I think Luther, right, he's okay with some forms of hymns, right? We, we must think so, right? He's a hymn writer, yeah. right? He writes yeah, yeah. some hymns, so he must have enjoyed some of them. He enjoyed singing At too, least, right? yeah, sing, yeah, he's, yeah. right, enjoys singing. He's apparently he has a, a good singing voice. So that's our 16th century context. And we've talked a little bit about the 17th century, the civil war in England, it's a conflict over religion, it's violent conflict yeah. over religion, quite deeply violent. And as we approach the time of Abbott, so we saw the glorious revolution, but we also have some intellectual transformations. Again, maybe what are some of these intellectual transformations that uh, are going on? Well, funny you mention it. The Enlightenment had a big impact on the 18th century. It really does. Yeah, yeah. it really does. Mm-hmm. Um and I think probably its chief architect is, in many ways, John Locke, right? For sure, Especially yeah. in the English-speaking yeah. tradition. We have a lot of ideas from Locke, his yeah. essay concerning toleration, which in many ways is the inspiration for some of the documents that come out of the Glorious Revolution, like sort of tolerance for all forms of Protestantism, right? Yeah. Catholic, even, <laughs> yeah. Locke, even Locke says, well, actually, Catholics threaten the civil order, so they don't mm-hmm. get toleration. Yeah. But all types of... Protestants, and also some ideas about government, right? His two treatises on government um, are from around this period, but also his essay concerning human understanding, which yeah. I think has some, maybe some relationship yeah. to, to your document that we're going to talk yeah, about. So what sure. does Locke say maybe generally? In yeah, so Locke um, has this idea of tabula rasa. Yes, which, the white paper. Yeah, which, yeah. yeah, blank slate, which tabula was what the Romans used for note-taking right. back in the day when, the, um, yeah, so it was pretty much like a chalkboard that they would write right. on. Yeah. And so yours is blank, right? Yeah, so yeah, the blank. Yet. So yeah, he was, he was a big believer in that. Once you, when you were born, um, you're pretty much, I don't want to say, you're, you weren't brain dead, no. obviously not, but you didn't, you didn't um, have innate you were clean ideas. state. Yeah, you didn't yeah. have innate ideas. Yeah. And your environment and inter- interactions that you had, the way you grew up, really attributed to um, who you are as a person. And it also affected your social and emotional behavior as well. And you're, and really, you're just the author of your own soul, really. Right, right. And so that happens, right? We become the author of our own soul, of our own intellect, when we have all of these sensations, right? These observations from the world around us yeah. that are sort of written on that. Mm-hmm tabla rasa yeah and sort of as we write them on there as we sort of read them as we combine them right that's Locke's whole thing about simple and complex ideas and i think we're going to see a little later on how uh, our authors kind of riffs a little bit off of that idea in some ways yeah. right he sort of kind of thinks about well if we get sensations from the natural world that help us think that give us knowledge we also have music giving us sensation mm-hmm. too right so that's yeah. a, a type of, of learning um, that happens, which I find really fascinating. It tells us that everyone is reading Locke, right? Everyone, yeah. like Locke really is the father of all things. If this idea is trickling down to one of these sort of curates, right, in Gloucestershire, right? Yeah. Who's, uh, yeah. Giving these sermons. Um, so let's let's turn to him 
this man himself, right? Henry Abbott. Yeah. Who was this guy? Where is he from? What does he do? Who does he work for? Yeah. yeah. So in doing research, I couldn't find when Abbott was born, but... Right. Sometimes parish records aren't the best, yeah, right? Yeah, so that's well, not unusual. See, that's why... Yeah. That's because when I did research on the like clergy Oh, yeah. This database. awesome website. Yeah, we can put yeah, a plug yeah. in that. Maybe there'll be a sponsor so, someday, right? The clergy database website. So the first ping that popped up was when he was um, ordained as a deacon, on September 18th, uh, 1703, in um, Fowler, Edward, and Gloucester. Uh, Gloucester. And this this part I thought was kind of interesting was that he was appointed as a schoolmaster mm. at Glo- uh, Gloucester College School on April 30th, 1709, so about six years after he became... Okay, interesting. So he's yeah. teaching at some, probably at the cathedral school or something, yeah, school related yeah, yeah. in Gloucester to the church, yeah. And then on October... 20th, 1713, became a vicar of Longley, which Longley is five miles from Gloucester. And okay. to, put, to put it in context, to uh, Gloucester is uh, 103 miles west of London. Okay, yeah, it's sort of yeah. in this, like Gloucestershire is sort of approaching the Welsh border. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And he was a vicar up until his death in 1728. So, I mean, really, he died shortly after. Right, right. This is kind of like his culminating yeah. work in some way, which is also kind of cool. Yeah, that, yeah, we, that yeah, I was able to find it was kind yeah, of cool. Yeah, exactly. It's very cool. Yeah. And so, right, like a lot of people in the early 18th century church, right, he's not just by himself as a vicar. Um, mm-hmm. He has a patron. This is pretty common in the yeah. 18th century church, especially because I think into the 19th century and kind of implicitly in parts of England into the 20th century, um, the local lord gets to pick Oh, uh, he gets preferments, right? He gets to pick who, who becomes the vicar in some villages and towns, and mm-hmm. especially if they're attached to his estate. And so that means you sort of are involved in these patronage networks as a member of the church. This ramps up and gets a little political yeah. um, uh, with the Whigs and that sort of Whigs versus Tories in the 18th mm-hmm. century and some d- political debates that feed into the church. So Abbott has a patron, doesn't he? Right? Yes, he does. A powerful yeah, patron. Yeah, very yeah. powerful. Yeah. Uh, Lord Alan Bathurst. He came from a, well, he was born on November 16th, 1684, and he died on September 16th, 1775. So, I mean, he lived a very long, a long life. Time, yeah. 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 And he came from a powerful family, and um, how they became so powerful and wealthy was due to the slave trade. Right. So, with like, they're involved in the Royal Africa Company. Yep. Yeah. 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 And, yeah, they, they uh, his father was so rich, uh, Benjamin. He gave, Bathurst and his brother's estates before his death. Mm. Then Bathurst enrolled at Oxford in 1700. And 1704, he actually married his first cousin. Classic. Catherine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah was her name. And he, be, he uh, was a Tory in Parliament, I believe. Okay, so he's seven. a Tory. Yep. I was going to ask you that if you knew yep. what, which party he was part of. So yeah, he was a Tory. That makes a little more sense because this t- text with this sort of defense of the high church of him making mm-hmm, yeah. is sort of more in a, a Tory tradition of the yeah. church. Whigs are increasingly associated with nonconformism, at least they're suspected of it, which is yeah. kind of an insult, <laughs> yeah. right? So it would make sense then that a Tory peer like Lord Bathurst would have someone who's defending mm-hmm. high church expressions yeah. of worship like him making. So that's, re- that's really fascinating to me. And I think they definitely came into contact with each other probably between 1710 and 1713. Well, obviously right, seven, in this when period, he was, yeah. yeah. And I thought, well, going getting into the document, I thought it was interesting how, I, I believe you mentioned this earlier in a meeting, that the clergy would write um, an introduction, for example, this... Um, 
Oh, like a dedication. Bather, yeah, dedication. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty common for to, all ancient to the right, authors. To the right honorable yeah. Alan yeah. Lord Bathurst. My right, lord. Sort of, yeah, yeah, buttering up his patron yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's very classic. A classic 18th century yeah. thing where you sort of write... Yeah, it's kind of like yeah. thanking your sponsors today. Yeah, exactly. In a way. Like your acknowledgement section yeah. of a book. Right? Yeah, I'd yeah. like to thank the National Endowment for the Humanities, all of that <laughs> yeah. stuff. Yeah. So in the 18th century, you thank your aristocratic patron, which I'm not sure which I would prefer. Right? <laughs> yeah. The National Endowment for the Humanities or right, some local member of the aristocracy. You probably mm-hmm. get to eat a little better yeah. with the yeah, aristocracy sure, yeah. than the yeah, National Endowment for the Humanities. But. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I, it's something that makes this, these texts a little different from texts that we're more familiar with yeah, in the 21st sure. century. We don't really start with these like personal dedications yeah. where the author says, thank you, I'm, I hope you have nice yeah. health, right? Yeah, he yeah, says usually, that. Usually yeah. it's just like, to my beloved wife, Julie. Right, exactly, very, yeah, exactly, very or personal. in memory of. Yeah, in memory yeah. of, or yeah. Yeah. In spite of my faculty colleagues. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Things like that. All the students who bothered me during my office hours. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I wrote this book. Yeah, it does. I don't mean that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, right. So, yeah, that's it's interesting. And that gives us a little bit of this window into the relationship a little bit. This mm-hmm. client-patron yeah. relationship tells us there is a connection. And Abbott sees himself as engaging in sort of an intellectual argument in the sphere of public theology on behalf of his patron, on behalf of this maybe Tory perspective of the church, but also I think something that he's generally interested in, right? Abbott really does seem passionate Mm -hmm. about hymns and hymn makings. And I think that's part of the, right, this original context of this document, right? It's the anniversary meeting of the three choirs of Gloucester, Worcester, and Hereford. Yeah. So So it's almost like a celebration. Yeah. Yeah. It's a hymn singing celebration, as you say, right? And it says, of course, well, I don't know how true this is, but right published at the request of the audience. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll see, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we'll see. Well, I guess no way really of knowing um, how enthusiastic that audience really was for this forthcoming <laughs> text. Yeah. So let's dive into the document itself, right? Yeah. Um, we've done a lot of work exploring this uh, really cool 18th century document with this with its uh, hard S's that always make you want to lisp, yeah. right? Whenever yeah. you read them out loud <laughs> or even in your head. Yeah. Um, how does Abbott open this, right? How does it go? What's yeah. its flow? Um, so he actually opens it with a psalm, Psalm 81, uh, 1 and 2. And it says, Sing we merrily unto God our strength, make a cheerful noise unto the God of Jacob. Take the psalm, bring hither the tabret, the merry harp with the lute. Some nice sort of King David music making yeah. then in the psalms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think... That opens this theme that we've uh, discussed already a little bit, right? Yeah. Abbott uses some Reformation principles, right? Mm-hmm. He uses scripture um, to justify this. Yeah. And he, he sees the Psalms, I would say, as does Luther. That's one of the things that Luther loves to lecture from, in addition to Romans and Galatians, are the Psalms. Right? He does yeah. this um, German translation of the Psalms. So, again, this key text within scripture, right? This key text that already reveals to us his perspective on the church and music, right? Sola Scriptura, the Bible, mm-hmm. right? And that yeah. worship is involved also, in that. Like it's so. a, it's not like, oh, worship is bad. Like, yeah, no, yeah, yeah cheer, exactly. Like cheerful noise. Exactly, yeah. right? Yeah. It's, it's or happy, like, uh, like Mary. Yeah, and, mundane yeah. sounds. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, cheerful, right? Bring me those instruments, yeah. right? Sing merrily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So already he's sort of pumped up, I guess we could say. Yeah. Um, for music. And he uses that to basically have two points in this sermon. He has two basic points. He says, I'm going to do this, right? Mm -hmm. So what does Abbott say that he's going to do? So he said, and here I shall endeavor to speak 
of harmony or music in general. And his second point that he was going to bring up in his sermon was of what use it is towards exciting our devotion and to answer uh, some objections that are made against it. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah I yeah. love these. Again, I love these 18th century documents. Their titles are always really clear. Mm-hmm. And then they sort of straight up tell you what the thesis is. Right. Yeah. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. Right. So mm-hmm. let's start with that first point. What is harmony according to Abbott? What is music in general? Harmony? What does it do yeah. for so, us? Abbott says on the bottom page seven that music is the very voice of nature Mm. by which the little birds communicate their sentiments of love. Right. They warm (laughs) the passion each other in each other's breast by their warbling notes and according to their skill, make as different impressions upon those of their own kind as eloquence of an orator upon a rational audience. Mm. Oh, another great classic enlightenment phrase, right? So we have, yeah. And reading this like several times, I've wondered, um, you know, how, how he would say this. It kind of makes, it made me want to go, uh, yeah, it makes me want to go back in time and like watch, watch him give this sermon, see how right, he presented exactly. it. Yeah. And also like hear the type of music that he's thinking of, right. When he's preaching this hymn yeah. too, like that would be really cool yeah. to me as well. Um, so that's really cool, right? He starts with of the natural world, natural sense impressions, and that sort yeah. of creation itself is part of this mm-hmm. testimony that God's designed yeah. the world for music. Yeah. Right. So and like it, it's yeah, an irrational the, audience will. Yeah, and it's evident in the sun, the yeah. stars, and the trees. Yeah, exactly. And, the trees, yeah. the stars. He talks about all of that through this text, right? And he even says that like harmony has some key relationships to like eternity, even. Right. So yeah, what does he mm-hmm. say about that? music's relationship to eternity. So Abbott talks about eternity and like harmony's relationship to it. And I think a good example of this was on page eight when he talks about, or he discusses that music inspires love and devotion, the martial sounds of the drum and the trumpet and flame soldiers breast with courage. And so emboldens them that in no danger they can uh, drop their enterprises, but even fight even in, their forced graves. Yeah. And they're, yeah, in their graves. Right. So in a certain sense, he's saying, right, that like music inspires emotions, right? Music yeah. inspires us to action, right? And I think mm-hmm. that's part of it too. Like music and harmony, right, are evidence of God's creation. And I think what he's sort of trying to get at in that idea is that because it reminds us of devotion, because it recalls, he says, I think later in this, um, that even like the rising and the setting of the sun, right? The day alternates just like the rhythm of music and sound and substance and all of those things. They remind us that God has designed the world in a harmonious way, right? It's meant to. And it it encourages us. I mean, he says later on nine that the sing praises of their gods and to encourage their soldiers in the battle. So like worship, like encourages you to To go about your day and fight, fight for Christianity. Right. And, Hopefully, I mean, I mean that day you probably would kill one another, but hopefully not today. <laughs> right? Yeah, not. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully, maybe we can just have some metaphorical Christian soldiers, yeah. right? But he also says, right? It's um, like the majesty of, of music, right? Are these like he's throughout this? I sort of noticed like heavenly notes and majestic, manly, heavenly notes, um, acceptable to a deity, right? Testament, a testament to design. Again, music as sort of harmonious and rational. I think there's a certain 
right? In the West, we have this long tradition of sort of harmony that that blends well. We don't like sharp, dissonant harmony. Sort of, you think of sort of Chinese opera or things like that that always yeah. strikes like the Western ear as like discordant. Yeah. Right. And so we've always had this idea of harmony as something that blends and something that is evident of design, especially right. You、mm-hmm. think of like classic 18th century composers, not just hymn writers, but men like Mozart and Handel, right? That have、yeah. these. Classic classical musical scores that are again regular and have deep melodies and constantly have these resolutions into harmony. So I think Abbott is a part of that moment in some ways, a part of this sort of idea of harmony as a testament to God's design for everything, right? God's design for our soul, God's design for nature. All of these things are within the idea of music. So is there anything else you maybe you want to add? This at all before we move on yeah, to his second part?、Um, yeah, I kind of like too how he kind of gets into the vernacular of like music too, talking about、oh, really? adagio, yeah, and allegro. See, those things go right past me, right? Yeah, I'm not a sort of musical <laughs>、yeah. person term, but that's cool that you.、Mm-hmm. What what struck you about the way he he says those things? But yeah, so like he says that the flow adagio to、um, so lulls the passions、mm. that. You could even die upon the sound, whilst、mm. the brisk of allegro and other strain carry you to the very top of galantry. So, like,、um, you know, music. I mean, kind of controls your emotions too. Yeah, it has these like senses. Yeah, it's like yeah. soothing or like gets you fired up to do something. And yeah, it's. I I just found that to be very fascinating. Yeah, I find that fascinating too, especially with all these debates that the 18th century has over. What is sensation? Right. What is sensation? Is it sort of these、um, this sort of knowledge gathering thing we get from nature, sort of lock style, or is、mm-hmm. it something sort of deep and emotional, sort of Jean Jacques Rousseau、yeah. style, like the sort of romanticism of sort of that type of sense impression? I think right. This is a little early for、uh, Rousseau, right, because he doesn't write those things until a couple decades after Abbott. But we can already maybe begin to pick up some of that cult of sensibility. Um, that happens later in the 18th century, but so that's one part of sensation. But I think there really is this lock sensation to it.、Right? I think what he's doing by referencing nature, by referencing the way that, as you say, allegro and adagio give us different ideas about things, give us different ideas about how to process the information of the world, process the information of our soul and of heaven and of of Christ. I think goes back to those Lockean connections. Right,、it、reminds me of those. Lockean ideas about again sensation gathering, right? Simple ideas,、yeah. right? We can sort of even think about that in musical terms too, right? Simple notes、mm-hmm. come together for complex、yeah. harmony, right? Simple notes come together for complex harmony. Yeah, so yeah. I guess I kind of see echoes of Locke then. To use yeah, yeah, for sure. Like we're kind of like we're the authors of our own soul for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So then, what's the second half of the sermon then about? Remind me what his second. Yeah, so his, was. so his second part of his thesis、um, for this sermon was of what use it is towards exciting our devotion and to answer some objections. Right, we can get a window into some maybe yeah, what some yeah, of those yeah, were. Yeah, right, by the that, types of that things that are made against it. Okay, cool. So,、um, right, what is his justification for worship in church? He says cathedral worship. That's sort of the the 18th century would be the biggest expression of of worship, and in a sense. Of 21st century worship is kind of democratized in some way. We all not, we all sort of have choirs and sort of,、mm-hmm. sort of larger musical endeavor in our churches. So it's interesting to think about this as you started at the beginning and sort of what we do now. But what does he say then? 
was appropriate for cathedral worship. Why was this appropriate for cathedral worship at the beginning yeah, of the 18th I think, century? Um, going back to just like the title of the, I mean, I just reading it and connecting it, point really ties in with the title, the use and benefit of church music towards quickening our devotion. Ah, uh, yes, quickening our devotion. Yeah. yeah, and he doesn't really use that in the, but I think just like to summarize it in one sentence, like what this part was, right. it, that's what it is. So like he said on 13 that um, people who have not uh, zeal enough for religion, bring, bring them into the courts of praise, might be drawn thither by the church, by the chords of music, whose grave majestic notes move not upon the feet of abated appetite, but enkindle such a fond devotion will admit of no avocation till it arrives at the throne of grace. Uh, which is a fancy yeah. 18th century way of oh, yeah, saying what, right? The, the music yeah. moves us. Exactly, yeah. right? Exactly, and, right? All the way to the throne of grace, right? To, yeah. to God himself. And it doesn't, I don't, he didn't use that in that part, but I read another section. He likes to use the word kindle and talk about like yeah. fires. Right, which I gets us to maybe this old Greek idea of like the soul is like this yeah. flame inside of us. Yeah. yeah, so like music helps kindle our fire for right. our love and devotion right. towards God. It motivates the soul, right? He even says that, right? He says that, um, again, maybe back to some Lockean things, right? Can't escape mm -hmm. him. Um, that man is actually, right, a compound creature, right? Body yeah. and soul. And so one of the, again, one of those things that music does is gives us these impressions yeah. from the body, which unite to the soul. And he says that words and sounds are powerful charms by their variety to excite the passions, right? To give us these ideas, right? Give us these spiritual ideas. And I think, right, would you agree that maybe that's why he wants it in worship? So we're not just bored, right? So, yeah. so we actually, it's focusing our, yeah. our passion, our soul, right? Our mind, mm -hmm. our, our compound nature as body yeah. and soul yeah. into Christian I think, worship. I mean, we all probably know that person where when they drive, like when they drive to work or drive to school, they always listen to Shine FM or oh, yeah, like plug other, for where we're recording this. Yeah. yeah. Other, <laughs> other, uh, like worship stations or just on Spotify. And I mean, that really helps. I mean, that's what they do. Like some right. people drink coffee, some people go out for runs in the morning, but I mean, they, for their day to go off, right. They have to listen to worship music and it helps, mm. you know, with their soul. Right, this regulating start principle off their day, yeah. for the soul. So yeah, Abbott starts there then justifying it, sort of again, recalling some of the themes from his earlier part of the work, right? That the nature of music is part of what justifies its use in mm -hmm. um, cathedral worship as he says. He also, again, right, thinking about this sermon within the context of the Reformation, he also makes a direct appeal to scripture and to the record of belief in the yeah. Old and New Testament. Yeah. Right? So sola, what does he say about that? Sola Scriptura. Right. So, I mean, he mentions um, David's harp. Right. Yeah, that's right away yeah. in the Psalm. Yeah. Yeah. Saul, Saul had never such relief as he did from David's harp. I thought that was mm. really cool. Um, yeah. Right. Because David would play, right, for, Saul, for mm -hmm. Saul, right, to sort of calm his nerves. As, yeah. Yeah. Just like the Psalm at the beginning. Right. Um, yeah. That's what he said on 16. In the vision of the prophet Isaiah, chapter six, the seraphims are represented. Um, oh yes, I forgot about this. Crying to yeah. one another, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of holies. Heaven and earth are full of His glory." Right. So he's like Isaiah, right? Has that vision yeah. of heaven, right? Mm -hmm. And Abbott realizes that the part of that vision are these things, these seraphims, which I've yeah. never been exactly sure what these are supposed to be mm -hmm. um, in scripture. 
but they're what are they doing? They're singing, right? Yeah. They're singing this song, right? So and the and a little bit before that, uh, on fifteen, mm-hmm. the second paragraph, he talks about the first song that we read in scripture uh, is that of Moses mm-hmm. at the destruction of the of Pharaoh and the safe passage oh, yeah. of the Israelites through the Red Sea. It's interesting that Abbott kind of sees these prayers in the Old Testament as a type of of song, right? Yeah. Um, and I think sometimes we can uh, forget that a lot of those things that we sort of read as prayers throughout scripture were sung uh, quite often, right? So Abbott is sort of keen for us to remember that and, and good to point that out, right? That yeah. things like Moses' thankfulness at the destruction of Pharaoh and the Red Sea is a song, it's vocal instrumentation, is this worship of God musically that is unfolding. Mm-hmm. And um, he, yeah. he not only talks about like Christianity too, he talks about like Judaism too. Yeah, exactly. Right. And he the, says that there's a record, right? Yeah. Um, from early on, mm-hmm. from early on. And I yeah. kinda, he kind of like calls out the haters by saying, yeah. so whatever, whatever objection. Well, so before he made his um, objection, he said that tis indeed a more harmonious and emphatical way of speaking, but I see no reason why men may not as well reject vocal prayer as as vocal music because they were both used by the Jews. Yeah, exactly. And so later on, this is on 16, he said that, so that whatever objections are now made against church music, uh, they were as good as in David's time as now, and yet the pro- then prophets composed hymns and prophets set tunes. Right. And he, yeah, <laughs> as you carried on giving right. just more examples. Right, right, um, right. And says basically no one's justified, yeah. right? And saying, right, the argument that we shouldn't sing in church could have been made in the Old Testament if they were singing then. Yeah. And they didn't, right? They didn't. It would have it would have been in one of those um, parts of the Mosaic law given to the children of Israel. If God said, no, don't sing, you would have said, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, don't yeah, sing, yeah. right? Uh, but instead the exact opposite happens, yeah. right? And he has all these references in the Old Testament. And of course, right, to the critic who might say, well, that was the Old Covenant. That was the Old Covenant. Maybe we shouldn't have this in the New Testament church, right? We've rejected parts of the Right, rejected parts of the Mosaic Law. We enjoy our bacon, uh, <laughs> yeah. right, and our pork products now and in 18th century England. But then, right, Abbott says, well, we have worship in the New Testament too, don't we? Right, so mm-hmm. we have um, worship in the New Testament. Um, I know he points out some things about Revelation, right, that there's these visions in heaven, right? What does he say about that as well, right? The New Testament worship. Yeah, so he talks about that on page 18. Right. I believe they. Revelations 4. And he said, at the same answer is given to it that the image and the apocalyptic visions are taken from the law. Right, so that's that critique. And not right, from the gospel. Not, right, yeah. yeah. But what does he say, right? That's not true because... Because, I mean, there's music, right? Right, exactly. And yeah. that the book was, he says it's directed to Christian churches, right? So mm-hmm. it must be a Christian thing, right? That's what he says, like singing, yeah. the singing that we hear of. Again, like Isaiah had that vision, right? John the Revelator has a similar vision. And he says, well, that must be this pattern. And then Paul says stuff too. Right, Paul says stuff too. Um, at the bottom of Abbots eighteen, right? We should admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts to yeah. the Lord. Right. So there's no, I guess, New Testament prohibition then on, as he would say, yeah. cathedral. And worship. that's when he started getting into the objections. Right. Too. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And he was hyping up some saints. Right, yeah, so some church he, he fathers. Them, yeah, uh, yeah. Quote, uh, great and good men as any of the fathers of the capital C church or yeah, of exactly. our <laughs> church. Yeah. Yeah. 
And then he says, too, then we get to some nice Reformation themes. Right? Yeah. So, he even brings up Erasmus, right? Yeah. How more Reformation-y, yeah, well, even he though called, he stays Catholic. But still, yeah. right? The Godfather, right? The man who laid the egg that Luther hatched, right? So mm-hmm. what did Erasmus have yeah, to say Yeah, he about? called Erasmus and the other Reformers great enemies to this way of worship. So this yeah. idea that Abbott's been talking about throughout this whole sermon. And uh, so he kind of, then he talks about like prayers were performed in an unknown tongue right. so that their singing was mere noise. Right, and yeah. And could not contribute nothing to devotion. Exactly. So this gets us to that Reformation theme. That's why Erasmus, he didn't like worship that you didn't understand, right? Yeah. That's why he was sort of, Erasmus can be critical of the cult of the saints, right? People don't understand this. It's just superstition, right? They don't understand yeah. Latin hymns. And Abbott is saying, what? Like we've reformed. We sing in English, right? We sing in English. People understand. It is devotion. It is back to yeah. that quickening of the soul. Yeah, and he, that you he brings out. up, um, well, yeah, kind of like, but there's, yeah, this was an argument, but there's no more an, an argument against English hymns right. and anthems than against English prayers. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so again, he brings up yeah. like prayer, yeah. Exactly, right? If you're um, against singing, again, you're against prayer in a certain sense. Because um, yeah, going back to the like, Old Testament. Exactly, right? Yeah. This, this example, this scriptural justification, mm-hmm. right? For all of those things. So. How does he conclude this text then, right? What are his ultimate conclusions then throughout this document? He kind of talks about God as the strings are touched by a masterly hand or the that grand machine, which can at one express in different chords of the whole scale of music. Do they create joy? What conclusions in the audience? He talks about like stories, stories of Orpheus and Amphium. Yeah. To, again, these Greek yeah. legends and ideas. Yeah. So it, Music then is something that is fundamental, right, to Christian mm-hmm. worship. And he also, I think, at some point says, we're going to do this in heaven, right? Yeah. We're going to do this in heaven, right? So you might as well get okay with it now. Basically, yeah. <laughs> it's also part of his, his point too, right? Mm-hmm. Again, pointing to Scripture, right, pointing to the fact these illusions in Scripture about the world to come that will be premised upon sort of worship of God, right? And he yeah. identifies this, with, again, with, with singing. So hymns are justified then. So let's maybe think about some some wider things. What do you think that studying a subject like this, like music, mm-hmm. lets the historian learn about something like the long reformation about this world from the 16th century to the 18th century, just sort of in yeah. general, what can we I think learn from this? Music is definitely attached to cultures for sure. Yes, yeah. Cultures and religions. And, um, so the worship that we do today here in Illinois would be probably different than in the deep South and like right, Alabama, exactly. Mississippi. Right. And not to mention like other countries. Yeah. Like yeah, France, like other, right? yeah, yeah, exactly, other, yeah exactly, especially yeah. like France yeah. or even like other religions. Like exactly. In the Middle Within East Christianity or, yeah. or yeah, sort of Orthodox, Greek mm-hmm. Orthodox Christian or your sort of low church Baptist yeah. and all those in the United States. And then, yeah, as you say, right. Mm-hmm. Middle Eastern Christians or other religions. I mean, personally, um, I, f- I found this to be fascinating. And doing research, like this was a one, like there's love at first sight. Oh, like, yeah. I saw, I saw, I was like, yeah, this is the one. Just reading the first few pages of it. Yeah, I think Abbott got is me like, hooked. he's a good, yeah, like persuasive writer. Yeah, I want to, I want to find like writer. more works of his. Yeah, I wonder if there are more works yeah. of his. That's another fascinating thing, too. Like he says he has an MA, um, a little bit about his background, right? It says Henry Abbott, MA, chaplain to the Right Honorable Alan Lord Bathurst. <laughs> so maybe there are some other texts out there. 
Maybe they're waiting in some dusty right, yeah. Gloucestershire archive. Yeah, yeah. Waiting, <laughs> waiting for me to yeah, come. Yeah, exactly, and find right? Them. You, need, you need to, right? We shouldn't be making fun of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Yeah. You need to get some, yeah. them or an aristocratic patron. Maybe, right, maybe all of that can uh, pave me pay yeah, for all a that. trip for Dr. Me to, Bowling, are you yeah, listening? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Send me over. Jacob over wants the pond. to go to Gloucestershire, yeah. yeah. <laughs> to look in the archives. This has been definitely a fascinating topic to hear mm-hmm. you talk about. Like, I was fascinated by the sermon, too, and like his context in his world in the 18th century. It's a sort of fascinating little lens into this thing that's going on with these still lingering debates about church worship. I want to know more about these hymn sort of choir meetings that are going on too, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know that much about that. I'm not really sure about any oh, yeah, the, scholarly literature about it, but the, if they're having an anniversary meeting of the three choirs, that must mean yeah. they've met before, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So this must be some type of thing that's happening. I wish it, I wish it had frequently. like annual. Yeah, yeah. So if you knew it was like the 10th annual. Yeah, exactly. Or yeah, exactly. Right. That. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. I know that church music becomes more and more popular thanks in part to Mr. Wesley, right? Yeah. Who's a part of this over the course of the 18th century. But it's interesting to think about all those things that we don't usually have the time to talk about when we talk about the great sort of theological debates, right? Luther and Erasmus on free will, John Wesley on a second work of grace, or the Puritans and their politics with Charles I and the Civil War. Yeah. Right? It's important for us to remember that. Lots of other things are going on too. Lots of other cultural mm-hmm. things are going too, which, as you say, insightfully reflect the integration of culture and theology and culture and history and all mm-hmm. these types of things. So it's been fascinating for me. Yeah. So yeah thanks for thanks, having me. Yeah. Thanks for coming on.